TLDR, you guys are awesome. Joe, when Axel Alonso tells you to do something, you do it. We've learned that, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yes. So when we had him on a couple of weeks ago, uh, he told us that we had to talk to somebody who had written a few things over at AWA. And of course, this man has written quite a few things uh, over the years. Of course, you got Nightwing, Wolverine, well, a lot of stuff with Wolverine. And we'll get to that too. And he has his uh, book in prose, The Ninth Metal, that's out now too as well. We'll talk about all that stuff. But without further ado, Joe, who do we have on with us today? Today we have Benjamin Percy. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. Thank you for coming on. So, as as Nick said, we wanted we wanted to talk you know a little bit about everything you know you today, especially your time over at AWA, but also with Marvel and and uh, you know your, your fiction work that you're doing as well. And so, one of the things we wanted we wanted to start off with AWA and with having written so much for both Marvel, you know, and DC. What was it that sort of drew you to AWA? Well, Axel's a good friend of mine, and when he left Marvel, we remained in touch. He's the reason that I got the job writing Wolverine the Long Night, the podcast. Uh, we stayed in touch. He was building this new company with Bill Jemis and reached out about the possibility of me doing some creator-owned stuff with them. Um, up to this point, I was hesitant to test the waters at Image, uh, because there's kind of a DIY element to that all. Uh, I like the idea of working with a company where, um, you know, they're, they're taking care of managing all the pieces, you know, hiring the colorist and taking care of the marketing and, and getting you out uh, to the property out to Hollywood as well. And under Axel's leadership, I knew that there was the possibility that AWA could become a kind of Vertigo 2.0. So, you know, the first thing that we talked about was uh, some type of zombie story to fill the vacuum uh, that had suddenly emerged with the absence of The Walking Dead. And, and we started going back and forth and came up with this idea for year zero. And, you know, talk a little bit more about Devil's Highway down the line, but you know, just the idea of being able to work with Axel, being able to work with him in, in the capacity where he was hands-on again, because at Marvel he had, uh, you know, he'd become such a figurehead of the company and he had so many, so many plates to spin that he wasn't in the trenches when it came to editorial in the way that he used to be back in the Vertigo days. So I love the idea of us just as friends, as collaborators, getting on the phone or trading emails and building story together. I mean, it's crazy how everybody we've talked to on the show that's had a working relationship with Axel in the past, um, it's, it's like whether it's Colin Bunn, Rodney Barnes or yourself, everybody speaks so highly of him um, based on their interactions with him you know, over the years. It's just, he seems like someone who has united everybody um, in this industry. Yeah. He's uh, smart as hell. And, and and completely relatable and obviously ambitious, deeply ambitious. And when it comes to the vision of AWA, you know, they see themselves as not just a platform for great comics, but also they've got podcasts and, and movies and TV in their crosshairs and they want to create, you know, a transmedia company that sort of covers all the bases. So, 
he's the person to to spearhead that kind of thing. So what has been your experience with the creator-owned stuff versus writing the known properties like Wolverine over at Marvel or, or Nightwing over at DC? Is there one that you find that you prefer over the other? Well, I mean, I've been writing novels and short stories for 20 years. So there's, uh, you know, no real difference in that capacity. It's just a different kind of flex, you know, writing creator-owned comics compared to writing novels. Uh, but, you know, it is as much fun as it is to write for DC or to write for Marvel. There's always, you know, that, that part of you that recognizes you're a custodian of these characters. Um, they don't belong to you. This world, this universe doesn't belong to you. Um, you know, somebody else is going to come along and take over in a year, in two years, in five years. And, and you'll have had your chance to, to put a dent, you know, in that, in that universe. But again, it's not yours. So that, you know, I, I absolutely love playing in the sandbox, you know, being able to, to write, whether it's Hulk or Ghost Rider or Wolverine or wh whatever, you know, they offer me, uh, bring it on. But, you know, to be able to call something uniquely your own, to be able to, you know, be your own world builder, that's... That's why I got into the business of storytelling. And with with Wolverine, one would argue you have you have a monopoly on that world right now. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But with uh, I've personally talked about Devil's Highway on the show a little while back with Joe, and I know he has some questions for you about Year Zero that he's going to get yeah. into. But with Devil's Highway, if you know you left it as there could be more to this story. There could be, I mean, I think there could be a lot more to this story. And it was interesting to talk, you know, your, 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 I don't know if it was into the end of the first issue or the last one, but where you talked about your experience with truckers and everything and being a, a Midwest guy, right? Cause you're, is it Minnesota that you were? Yeah, Minnesota. So does yeah. Scoot over the artist. And I, and I do have a question about him a little bit afterwards too, but do you think that if you were to continue forward in this world that you've created here on the devil's highway, um, is it going to, are we going to see a lot more of Sharon Harrow's story or is it kind of more centered around the villainous portion of the story that you'll stick with? Well, volume two of devil's highway is underway presently. The awesome. first issue is entirely inked. Colors are happening as we speak with Nick, Nick Filardi. And, uh, it continues to follow Sharon Harrow's story. So the requirement, of course, of any sequel is that things have to get that much bigger. The stakes have to escalate. And so I believe the tagline that we're going with for volume two is hell has no borders. Um, and it opens up with something that you'll probably recognize from headlines over the past few years. There have been several occasions where trucks have been discovered and their trailers are packed full of dead people. Uh, <laughs> you know, people who have been um, suffocated by uh, the passage, you know, the passage overseas sometimes when they're on a container ship or, you know, they've overheated when crossing the border, but human trafficking, right? There's a lot, our borders are very porous. I'm talking about the Northern border in particular where there is, um, you know, lakes and, and forests to camouflage any passage and where there's not nearly the security or the attention that you have on the southern border. Mm 
Right. That northern border is very porous, and so we have these uh, what we're calling midnight highways, you know, oh. partly based on truth. Um, you know, these these hidden highways that that are arteries between Canada and the U.S. And that's where things open up is, is Sharon and, and, and Quentin Skinner investigating a new case that just expands this whole network of, wow. uh, you know, the, the, we, we saw at the end of the last issue of volume one, uh, this guy known as the webmaster who seemed to be somehow controlling what was going on with this larger conspiracy, this larger cabal of truckers. Mm -hmm. And it's even bigger than we initially thought and its fingers extend even into i mean I, I hinted at law enforcement before but even into federal agencies and the fbi that makes i mean that makes perfect sense but i cannot believe you made it even bigger because it already seemed pretty gargantuan by the way by the end of the first volume but it's you know what i found interesting about it when i was telling joe was like we're we're northeast guys now i went to school in the midwest for four years so like i learned about the whole human trafficking thing and trucking and like how it was kind of a thing that I wasn't aware of, and Joe maybe not as much either when we were younger, just in the Northeast, it's we still have it, but it's just not, it's a little bit different. And I'm curious, is that like, I know the story you provided seemed, you seem like you were a little bit older. You could drive at least at the time. That's the, the encounter you had with the truck driver, right? With the mask or whatever it was, the clown face mask. Is that right? Yeah. 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 I was driving so, just through Illinois, which I would never wish upon anyone. <laughs> this goes on and on and on forever and it was in this corn belt region i was alone on the interstate except for a truck uh rolling up ahead and it looked like it had been dug out of a muddy pit like it looked like it had come out of a grave it was just encased in mud and, and as i approached i could see scrawled across the rear of this tractor trailer the words these sloppy words and they, they read you know show me your boobs <laughs> like what kind of creep is driving this thing so as i pulled up beside it i ducked down to look up and you know a face swung toward me and I'm oh smart not making this up. He was wearing a clown mask. And, and so I, you know, showed him my boobs and, <laughs> and slammed the accelerator and got the hell out of there. But I, it's, you know, this is 20 years ago, but it still haunts me. The idea that that guy's out there somewhere. I, it, it smokes. I'm terrified right now. <laughs> yeah. It really added to, and I think it was after the first issue that you shared that story and it really added to the gravity of the whole thing. And I'm curious, like when was this the whole the craziness of the trucking industry and everything was that something that as a Midwest kid, you kind of, as a kid that you learned about too, or is it something you learned about as you got older? Well, I grew up in Oregon actually, and, oh. and I've lived in the Midwest for some time now. I've lived in Minnesota alone for nine years, but the, the idea of trucking has always appealed to me. I mean, the, ever since I watched over the top, <laughs> uh, ever since I watched, uh, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg's, uh, and based on the Richard Math Matheson story, uh, film, uh, now I'm spacing on what it is, you know, the one where the truck is, is pursuing him the entire time. Um, the, and, and maximum overdrive and everything else. But the idea that there, not only is a truck just ha a kind of steel monster, I mean, it weighs, tens of thousands of pounds. We've all had that moment where they, uh, you know, 
hike up on you in your rear view and and you know maybe lay on the horn or shine their brights and you're blinded and just feel a little bit like a speck that can be tossed off the interstate if you make the wrong move but you know they're an invisible industry they're 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 everywhere and the country couldn't exist without them um but we don't pay any attention to them and there's this whole underworld connected to trucking some of it rather sinister um the fbi we learned uh, and doing further research, you know, the FBI believes that there might be a dozen or more serial killers operating tractor trailers right now. And that's because it's such an anonymous industry. You know, mm -hmm. you are constantly on the move. You are exposed to vulnerable populations. And, yeah, you can drop body parts wherever you want. Uh, yeah, it's it's freaking terrifying. And I mean, in in hi you highlight uh, you know, quite a bit of that throughout the first volume. But the other thing that stands out too is as much, along with your writing, of course, is Brent and Nick Filardi's artwork. And I mean, they, they help set the tone. I mean, I, I, how did you call it? Uh, is it like not Midwestern Gothic, but I, for I forget exactly how you put it, but it was I, I, it was perfect. Yeah, and Northern Northern Gothic. Northern Gothic. So, I mean, I know that Axel and them have say in, you know, who's helping out with um, the story and storytelling and everything, but how did you decide on teaming up with Brent for this story? Yeah, and, and I had a brain fart before, but the name of the movie is Duel. Okay, okay. I, have, I, have, I haven't seen it. Sorry, I couldn't help you with that. This, this truck that's in, it's like Michael, My, if Michael Myers was a truck, there's just this <laughs> truck that won't stop chasing this guy. Nice. Um, it's relentless and terrifying. But anyways, Brent and I, uh, we met probably about eight years ago um, at Minnesota's Comic-Con. And we've just stayed in touch and, you know, talked about collaborating. And we sort of created this tradition where we would meet uh, prior to the MSP Con and have this massive breakfast at this restaurant, this diner called The Key. Um, and... You know, over our eggs and hash browns and black coffee, we started talking about this idea in particular. And uh, he's a big horror guy and a big crime guy, and and we have a similar sensibility in that regard. So we 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 sort of brain we probably brainstormed this for three years before we actually uh, you know put together some samples and found the opportunity to. Uh, you know, build it as a series with AWA. Um, I had actually initially considered selling this to TV directly. Um, I've had issues in the past, however, where I've sold a TV show and then it just dies in development. And I like the idea of, you know, having something that is a physical artifact so that the story actually exists uh, and can be developed. So um, I'm always trying to go print first for anything instead of pitching directly to a studio. And it seemed like AWA, again, because of its transmedia pop possibilities, would be the perfect place to bring this to life. And so, yeah, Brent and I, um, you know, we get together as often as we can to down some beers or watch horror movies. And it's been a hell of a lot of fun creating this, uh, not just the first volume, but now the second volume with him. Nice. So you talked about when you first came over to AWA and, and, and you and Axel were talking about creating a zombie book to sort of you know, fill the void, you know, left by, you know, The Walking Dead. And so uh, I've just finished reading Year Zero. 
you know, absolutely loved it. And and I'm reading it. And when I looked at when it came out, this is the second AWA book now that I've read that came out at the start of the pandemic, both revolving around, you know, some sort of virus, right? You had the resistance and then, you know, with your zero, you know, being the zombies. And so obviously that was, you know, planned well before we ever knew what the heck COVID was. But as you're as you're you know writing that and and getting into the second volume, did your storytelling you know uh, approach change you know once we were sort of in the thick of COVID, or was that something that was just fully mapped out right from the get go? No, it was fully mapped out. I'd say I probably wrote most of Year Zero. The thing about AWA is they don't release solicitations even until all the books are done, like an entire volume is finished for art. Um, so I was probably I was probably done with Year Zero Volume One two years before. Oh wow! COVID. Oh wow! Uh, so it's pure coincidence that it came out during the middle of you know an, an, a world-ending story came out during a you know a scary time. Uh, and 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 Volume Two maybe you know I don't know the the second volume there might have been some overlap, uh, but you know I've always had kind of an apocalyptic imagination i guess you could say that i even grew up in a pre-apocalyptic fashion uh, my parents were back to the landers for a time so i grew up on 27 acres and my dad hunted all of our food you know i grew up eating venison and elk and bear that's why i sound like this steady <laughs> bear. Uh, you know my mom grew all of our vegetables we had fruit trees and and yeah I uh, went to survival camp, you know, as like a fifth grader, um, and, and I could go on. But, we, you know, I I grew up in such a way that I've, I've always sort of thought about things coming to a close. And uh, I've also grown up obsessed with horror movies, including zombie movies. And obviously I love Romero, you know, the yeah. godfather of the of the genre. Uh, but I also love, you know, 28 Days Later. and Oh, that one's oh, tremendous. Oh, yeah. Especially the soundtrack, too. Yeah, indeed. And, and one of the things I wanted to do with this book, though, was to create, you know, you can't just write a zombie book and and be derivative and be doing karaoke. Um, you know, you want to you wanna put your own, I have that same sensibility when it comes to anything. I don't want to be the guy who does karaoke. I don't want to be the cover band. You know, when it comes to Wolverine or anything else, I'm going to put my unique mark on it. So I was thinking about a, how, you know, if you look at Romero's movies, they're almost always a fishbowl scenario. Here they are in a cabin in Night of the Living Dead. Here they are in a mall. Here they are in this government bunker. You know, if you go through the films, it's sort of like that. And and Walking Dead was somewhat equivalent in that you have this band of survivors they're in a prison for a while and they're in another place for a while you know this this, this sort of mayberry-esque village for a while and, and so on and so forth so what i wanted to do was to create something that felt global and it made sense to me that it would have a fractured style to match the fractured world so you have these different storylines these variant storylines and you you they're sort of like pieces of a mosaic, you know, these broken shards that come together to become a whole picture of what's going on simultaneously around the world. They're thematically tied uh, more than anything. And I also 
you know, approach the volume this way when it comes to history. And, and if you've read it, you know that there, in every issue, there are historical artifacts. You know, sometimes it's a medieval tapestry. Sometimes it's uh, pages torn from Da Vinci's notebooks. Sometimes, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a scroll from, from ancient China. And, and you recognize that through these artifacts, you know, the, the virus in, in different forms has, been, has always been with us. So it's like an amalgamation of different storylines from around the world, different storylines from, from our past, and, and, the, and they weave together in this, what I hope is a hopefully unique way. Yeah, so, that, was, that was one of my favorite aspects of the first volume was, you know, each book sort of started a certain way and ended with the historical, you know, uh, artifacts. And then in between, you've got, you know, the the you know the, the viewpoints from all the, the various characters and and so that was sort of my my next question is you know out of both volumes that have come out there's nine or ten different you know characters that we're, we're following different storylines that we're following and you know i i come from a, a medical background and so when i was initially reading the story of ishmael i was sort of infuriated and his storyline really made me upset but by the end of it 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 out of all the different stories, his was my favorite because it came full circle, you know, from where he started to where he finished. So I wanted to ask you, while, while writing all those different characters from all those different backgrounds and in all those different scenarios, which one was your favorite to write and, and uh, you know, put together? That's, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I tried, I tried to build, you know, characters that were completely unique, even though they're thematically tied. You know, the, the first volume really has to do with faith. Um, it could be faith in the self. It could be faith in the system. It could be faith in a God. But they're all they're all united by faith. And, and the second volume is about adapting to this new normal in the world. Like, people are no longer just going, what the fuck is going on? They're yeah. now going, like, how do I how do I create a new life in this world or give up on a life in this world? And, uh, you know, I wanted, I felt like most of the characters in volume one were good characters you could root for in some way. You know, you've got like the street urchin kid, you've got the Yakuza assassin who's trying to get out of that life. You yeah. know, they all had sort of like a moral compass that they were trying to follow. Uh, but in the second volume, I wanted to get a little dirtier. And I think it was actually most fun to write El Topo. Yeah. And that's the character. You know, I was always thinking, like, who would actually survive a zombie apocalypse? I want, you know, because most people wouldn't. Most people right. would most. So, we all think we would, but no. <laughs> I tried okay, what about this guy who has, you know, all the guns, all the money, already has walls built around him, you know, a Colombian drug lord. Yeah. <laughs> You know, with a menagerie of, of tigers and giraffes and everything else on his compound. He's like created his own. He's already created, you know, the ultimate backup plan. Yeah. Uh, and, and anyways, just like getting into his completely despicable mindset uh, was a lot of fun when dealing with other characters who conversely were doing everything they could to do right by the world. Yeah. Uh, such as the Ishmael character. You know, despite yeah. his shortcomings, like he just, he wants to help. He wants yeah. to make atone for his sins, I guess you could say. 
Um, so yeah, I just the just the complete wretchedness of the El Topo character might have made him the most fun. Yeah, I, I, he was he was fun as hell to read for sure because it was the most wild out of you know all all the different characters and, and the imagery um, and, and all that. And so with volumes one and two out. Is there plans to do you know more volumes of this, or or is, was two sort of the uh, the end of it? Uh, there is a plan. Uh, I'm very busy right now, but I hope to get to it. Uh, but you might get a glimpse of what what's to come when you in the last page. I did something different with volume two, where instead of having historical artifacts um, as the as the final two pages, I instead have like dispatches. Yeah. You know, it could be like a trucker in northern Alaska who's created like this crazy ass, you know, zombie truck and he's just barreling along and there's like frozen zombies on the interstate and he just shatters through them. And, you know, he's going along talking on the CB radio and you just get the transcript from that. Or it's like there's one that's a napkin that somebody's written in a bar. They've written like a goodbye note in the bar and you can see like there's blood splatter at the end. You know, so I've got like these dispatches throughout and the final dispatch comes from a a space station where the people are like, what the hell's going on down there, guys? That's what I was hoping to hear. <laughs> that was Thank awesome. you a hint as to what, what's coming next. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and it's no, the last question no, for no, me. Zombie has boldly gone before. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. I saw that. I go, Oh, I hope, I, I hope when I ask him this question, there's plans for more because this could, this could get wild. Uh, so last question I have about uh, year zero is, uh, I didn't know if it was just done because of convenience, uh, you know, who was available or if there was a decision to move in this direction, but you have a different art team from volume one to volume two. Was that just because of availability or is that like a decision that you wanted to make in terms of this is a a different from volume one. So I want to have a different tone, sort of a different setting. Well, in volume one, we made the decision to show almost no zombies. Yeah. You know, the shark is scarier when you just see the fin and the surgeon yep. the yep. water. Uh, and so we we're trying to do a lot of things that were different with year zero, but one of them was like, keep the zombies off camera as long as possible and really try to authenticate this world and ground it in realism so that you unite with these characters and, and uh, are in for a different sort of trip than you're accustomed to. You know, the zombies do make an appearance by, but it's all in the latter half of that. So Ramon, he's like, he's a genius when it comes to authenticating environments. He does a lot of research into trying to make Mexico City look like Mexico City. Trying to make a polar research station look like a polar research station. You know, figuring out how to make Kabul, Kabul, and not just, you know, a few touristy guesses at at what that, that location is like. So, you know, Ramon was a perfect match for volume one. And when it came to volume two, we were really trying to lean into the horror of it all uh, and ramp up that element. Now the zombies were on stage. So Juan Jose Rip is just, I mean, that guy is terrifying. You know, yeah. the, way, the way in which he, he draws it. He, can, he really captures, I mean, he's his own thing, but there's like some EC, EC comics grotesqueness to what he to what he illustrates and so he just seemed like a great fit i mean part of it was timing but it was also juan seemed like the perfect dude to to ink a, a zombie yeah because it was it was absolutely 
awesome. I mean, the art was fantastic, and 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 you definitely get the horror vibes and and everything because there's some scenes and. You, and I've talked about this with, with, with Cullen and, and, and Scott Snyder. Like, I terrify easily. So yeah. reading these books at night for me kind of keeps me up a little bit. And, and the second volume, definitely I slept a little less than I did after reading volume one. Yeah, I mean, you see it from the very first page. There's this fisherman uh, off the coast of Sweden, and she's pulling up a net. You know, she's been on the water for over a year now with her with her grandkids, these twins, and she's pulling up this net and you know out here's the fish but then out of the netting you know they pull up this sort of sodden gray-skinned rotting zombie that's like bah! coming on board so it's a different sort of ride than volume one yeah speaking of not sleeping lately i've been watching too much of the conjuring i did it again to myself joe I didn't sleep much before our interview so that's good um but i wanted to uh, I want Brent. I wanted to move into a little bit of the Wolverine stuff because obviously Joe and I have been looking whether it's reading Wolverine or listening to stuff you're writing right. uh, for Wolverine, which we do want to talk about the podcasting portion of it as well. But just in general, like, what is your? And I feel like this is kind of a loaded question, but what is your favorite part about writing the character Wolverine? You know, I grew up obsessed with comics really they're my formative reading experience i talked about living on those 27 acres of big pines as a kid and my parents uh we lived the nearest town was crow oregon and it was a town so small that it had a mercantile not a grocery store and my mom would take me there and as she shopped the aisles she'd leave me below a spinner rack and i'd pull down comic after comic and read while she was um you know talking with the butcher or whatever. And if I was good during the course of that shopping expedition, I could take home a comic. And it was, I was reading man thing. I was reading warlord. I was reading X-Men. I was, it, you know, that's, that's my earliest imaginative hardwiring. I read those stories again and again and again until they fell apart in my hands. Um, and, and Wolverine was always my favorite character. Um, maybe that has something to do with growing up in a family that was sort of, did its own thing it was sort of separate from society that you know my dad uh and mom would be out in the garage butchering a thousand pound elk um you know uh, we, when we would go driving and and rock hounding and fishing and camping or whatever it'd always be a 357 balanced on the dashboard uh my 16th birthday i didn't get a car i got a I got a 357. Uh, <laughs> like I, I grew up in, I guess, uh, a world surrounded by loggers and ranchers. And and maybe because of that, I grew up in, to be a guy who, you know, is sort of like a, I'm, I'm a hairy, smelly, squat, grumpy loner, lives in the woods right now and likes to chomp on cigars and swill whiskey. So, you know, writing the series is sort of like writing thinly veiled Jeez, <laughs> Joe, you were right before when you said he should have been the voice on the long night. It's it makes perfect sense. Jeez, he is Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, really, so when and if you know mutants are you know officially introduced uh, into the MCU, being as big a Wolverine guy as you are, who would you like to see cast as Wolverine? We we just saw uh, Feige and and uh, Hugh Jackman sort of you know uh, tweeting out a picture of you know together. Uh, but if they don't go that route, who would you like to see? Well, Jackman's great, of course. He's too tall, though. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, Wolverine should be square shaped. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, I don't, there's not a lot, the thing about a lot of American actors right now is male, male American actors is they're kind of, I don't know, there's, they just, they look like Ken dolls. <laughs> a little too pretty for Wolverine. Pretty. And they just don't have that edge that the Australians do. Um, I mean, the Australians are where all the badasses are, if you look yeah. at the windows. So somebody who, or, or somebody like, you know, maybe, they, maybe they can find somebody in the bush of Australia, but otherwise somebody like Tom Hardy has that edge. Mm. I think he looks physically like Wolverine. I mean, physically, bulk, in terms of his bulk, he does, and his shortness, he does. Yeah. The face might not be right, but but somebody somebody in that vein. As long as he doesn't do the voice from Peaky Blinders, then we're okay. I mean, I love that show, but my God, he's the reason you have to have – more than anybody, you have to have subtitles on the show because of him. So he's got marbles. Did you watch that show at all? No, it's been recommended to me. I and love it. it. another show as well that leaned into that same sort of world. Maybe oh, Taboo, I think, perhaps. Yeah, Maybe you're yeah. thinking about that too. I thought, oh. was, is that, I thought it was Killian Murphy was the – He's the Peaky Blinders, right? He, he's the main. Yeah, he's in it as well. But he, he, Killian Murphy is the lead uh, lead character in that, and he's outstanding. I love him. But yeah, Mer uh, Hardy's in there for I think most of the seasons, if not three out of like the four so far. But I rewatched that actually recently. I absolutely love it. Um, but yeah, Hardy is a guy who we see like the the fan mock ups and everything when it comes to Wolverine. Like he would make he would make sense in some capacity. You should you should be afraid of Wolverine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Tom Hardy makes people uncomfortable. Like he's. He's kind of scary. Yeah, he is a little bit. And, I mean, with the Hugh whole Jackman—that's the downfall of Hugh Jackman. He's too tall, and he's been in the spotlight so long that people just love—they love Hugh Jackman. Just go up yes. and give him a hug, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, Wolverine should make you like feel anxious, and you want to, you know, edge away from him. Yes, and maybe they should write stories that are a little bit more loyal to the comics every once in a while when it comes to Wolverine. But that's a story for another day. Um, but I, uh, but kind of not along those lines, but when it comes to the, the mutants coming into the MCU, as the person who is writing Wolverine right now, whether it's the Long Night, the Last Trail, or Lost Trail, and then um, of course Wolverine itself with all everything going on in Krakoa, if they were to ask you, or I don't, whether or not they have, we have uh, Joe and I don't know, but when it comes to integrating m mutants into the MCU, is there anything that you think would work particularly better, or have you thought about this at all? At any yeah, point? I mean, I thought for sure that's the direction they were headed. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of crossover for comics writers who are also doing TV work or movie work for Marvel. You know, there's a look like Bendis did a little bit, but it just hasn't happened. I don't, I don't know why. There's not a feeder system there. But, um, you know, I thought for sure that's the direction they were moving with WandaVision. Mm. Um, when I saw uh, Quicksilver as the actor from the Sony. Yeah. I thought for sure this was just a multiverse situation, especially when I looked down the line and I saw Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and I knew that Loki was going to have to do with multiversal possibilities. I thought that was the hint, and I've heard about the Spider-Man movies that, um, you know, Tobey Maguire is going to show up in the Tom Holland movie. I thought for sure that meant that, you know, this was a setup. It turned out to be kind of a lame move, I thought. Um, yeah. The actor was just randomly in the show. Uh, I, I thought that would be the way to incorporate the mutants that mm -hmm. you have this multiversal situation then. 
there's a convergence that explains why mutants haven't been around all this time. Hopefully they still do that in the end. Because I, I w- honestly, Ben, when I saw Quicksilver, I, I was like little kid excited again. It was just, wait a minute, what? They actually did it? Yeah. But no, yeah, they, no, they didn't. <laughs> no, no, because then you start thinking maybe, maybe uh, you know, Doctor Strange is going to be House of M. They're just calling it Multiverse of Madness to throw everyone off. But yeah, yeah. it's still yeah. in play. It's still they could still it's, do some of it. It still might happen. Yeah. <laughs> the, the mutants will show up eventually. We'll just see what the entry point is. So I um I just finished listening to the Long Night, and I don't know what the heck took me so long, but <sighs> this thing just grabbed a hold of me this was you know listening to it because my wife and i we like to watch a lot of true crime shows listen to true crime podcasts and so listening to this with with just i mean the music alone uh was fantastic but the the voice acting and and the story was just absolutely you know outstanding how did the concept of the long night come to be and and also the idea of you know doing it as a podcast so when I was first approached about this, uh, all I knew was that Marvel wanted to do a podcast and they wanted it to be about Wolverine. They didn't have anything beyond that. They're like, what do you think? Give us a story. And it wasn't it wasn't my job yet. This was, you know, my chance, my shot. It was a bake-off situation. There were some other people also pitching. So the opportunity to write Wolverine alone, I was like, there's no way they're not going to give this to me. I'm putting everything I have into it. I wrote up something like a 50 page document detailing exactly how I would write the story and how I would play off audio. And in playing off audio, what I did was I listened to a bunch of podcasts and took notes and I was listening to S town and, uh, uh, homecoming. And why am I forgetting the name of that nonfiction podcast that has to do with, uh, you know, it was the crime one that was super popular for a while. That everybody was listening to. Serial? Serial, yeah. Yeah. And anyways, in listening to all these podcasts, I noticed that they were all told in an interrogative format, meaning here you have a therapist sitting down with a patient in Homecoming. Ask questions. Here you have S-Town. There's a journalist. Goes to a community. Sits down with people. Ask questions. Serial function in the same capacity. And a lot of the script some of the scripted podcasts that I was listening to by contrast were doing more of a, either they leaned into the fact that they were making a podcast, which was a little bit corny. I thought like, uh, like they'd say, you know, this, this podcast, they tried to create a documentary feel to it. And I, I wasn't quite there or they just tried to do an over the shoulder thing where they just followed characters along like old time radio dramas did. And instead, what I did was I leaned into what I thought was working with Homecoming, what I thought was working with S-Town and Serial, in that I wanted there to be a naturalistic way to convey all of the exposition that you take for granted when watching a film or reading a comic or watching a TV show, and that, okay, let's say people, your characters walk into uh, a sunlit environment on a beach. You just take that in in a nanosecond, when you're watching a movie, right? It doesn't have to be explained, but if you're listening to something, you don't know where you are. You don't know when you are. You don't want your characters doing things like, here I am walking into uh, old man Withers mansion on this August 2nd night where 
Ten years ago, some say, he murdered his wife with an axe. And lo, do you hear a creaking of wood beyond the door now? What could that be? You know, you, you don't want to have the dialogue doing all that clumsy work, except if you have an investigator, right? Then it's natural for it to be set up that way. So I had these investigators, these federal agents, entering a town searching for a killer. And as they search for this killer, they sit down with different people and interrogate them. And all of those interrogations, as is true with uh, True Detective, you know, they're, they're unreliable narrators. Mm-hmm. So as they tell their stories, they can be like, okay, where were you on that night? What exactly was happening? And somebody can be like, well, I was, you know, it's 4 a.m. and I was getting into my crab boat and it was foggy and I was taking the, you know, vessel out through the chop when I saw up ahead a ghost ship rolling back and forth in the wave, seemingly abandoned. And this is when, you know, you can start to ease into the past and and start to hear the slap of the waves and the creak of the rigging and hear the squeak of boots as they move across the deck and the, the, the rusty squeal as a hatch is opened up and somebody looks down and clicks on a flashlight and see the bodies in the hold. Like all those sort of things you can, you can sort of go from the present into the past and do, and, and do this combo thing uh, that, that really works out well because there's so many complications when you're writing audio. Like how do you write a fight? Right. I completely confuse people. And when yeah. people comics, they think of fight. So how am I, I'm translating Wolverine to audio. What can I do? The only way you can write a fight in audio is if you tell it from the vantage of the past. So that somebody's like, I was in this bar and guess mm. what I saw? There's this scary dude over in the corner drinking whiskey straight from the bottle. And then a bunch of, you know, a-holes came over to him and started giving him shit. Slams down the bottle, you know, and yeah. takes the broken glass to their neck, pops his, you know, makes a fist and I, I don't even know if I was 10 whiskeys in, maybe I was hallucinating, but claws came out of his knuckles, you know? And so you can, the only way to do it is sort of like to have that back and forth. So that's one of the things that I was trying to do, you know, thinking about true detective and, and that inter- interrogative mode, thinking about uh, those successful podcasts and leaning into that form and trying to tell sort of a murder mystery story about Wolverine that also put him in the shadows again and made him menacing again, because I'd felt like through the M- through the, the Marvel movies, he'd become too familiar and almost too cuddly. That's, that's fair. I mean, and, and it's definitely, I mean, I, when I listened to the lost trail, I really enjoyed that, but it, it definitely has like a muggy feeling of course, being set in Louisiana and everything, but listening to the lost trail, that was like my first kind of, for like first step into any of this type of podcasting story, like this type of storytelling. And I was blown away because it definitely like every time you're changing settings, um, you really got that feel of like, now I'm like envisioning this, um, this change in where things are going, just like you would with, with pros. So I really, really enjoyed right. the, the long night. I always, I'm, I'm stunned. I thought I had told Joe to listen to that a while back, but it's like, it is so good. Um, it's one of my favorite things that you've done personally. And I know you have uh, Wastelanders, uh, Old Man Star-Lord, that's on Sirius XM now as well. And I can't wait listen, to listen to that yeah. one. It's everywhere. It's on Apple. It's on Sirius. Oh, it's on Apple too. Okay, good. That saves me from joy. You can listen to it anywhere. But the, the thing about uh, and I, the Lost Trail, comparatively to the, to the long night, like they, they wouldn't let me do the the th- same thing that I'd done. I wanted to have, uh, you know, the interrogative mode used once more. 
mm-hmm. wanted to have that framework. They wouldn't let me do it. So that's why the Lost Trail, all the episodes are so much longer because that, that even though I enjoyed writing the series, it takes it's it's a lot clumsier just writing the over the shoulder thing. Mm-hmm. Audio. That, yeah, that makes it. I mean, I, I I thought it was just like I liked the Lost Trail, the Long Night, a little bit more because it was like the first thing. But okay, that makes a little more sense. Like I I, and I read a lot better, and I uh, read the comic version of it too, and I enjoyed that. And I might have liked it a little more if I had read it first, but the, just the original was just yeah. And hadn't hooked Old Man Star Lord though. I got my way again, and it has a, it has a design where you're following a Regillian recorder. Uh, oh. He's sort of like the vessel, the chronicler of all this. So okay. you're listening to data entries as as she's recorded, like the end of the the end of the Marvel world. Because I don't know if you know the premise, but the old man, old man Star Lord, old man is based on old man quill is based on old man logan is based on old man hawkeye like this whole old maniverse in the comics you know the the villains rose up and killed almost all the heroes so the villains control the world so when the guardians of the galaxy come back after 30 years uh you know 30 years later they're like scavengers now it's just quill and rocket there's some mysterious story you'll hear about what happened to the guardians and why they dissolved but it's Quill and rocket they're creaky they're salty they're fat. They're <laughs> they're also reliving their glory days in their heads, and then they arrive on Earth, and they're like, "What the hell happened?" Because everything's been completely upended, and Mount Rushmore has been replaced by you know four images of Doctor Doom etched into <laughs> etched into the stone. And such. Oh, that sounds us. Awesome. I'm I'm I can't wait to listen to this. I am even more happy now knowing that it's available on Apple because I thought it was just yep. Sirius XM. So three more. That's a huge help. Now, before we get into the ninth medal, which is, of course, available on your website, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble, I did want to ask you one last thing about Wolverine. I don't know if Joe has one, too, but with writing versus writing the podcast where you're writing, especially with The Long Night, where you're kind of writing around Wolverine, and again, still very, still awesome, love it, but then with the character in the comics, you're dealing more with some of his internal stuff. Of course, you got the in the monologue going on and everything and really looking at Wolverine and who, what's going on with him and uh, in juxtaposition to the stuff going on around him. Do you have a personal preference between the two and which way you're able to write the character? Uh, you know, one of the things that was I mentioned before is that in, in writing The Long Night, I wanted to put Wolverine in the shadows in the same way that you put the shark beneath the water and and make him something that you are wondering about. Take him, you know, out of the spotlight and, and make him a thing of the shadows so that, you know, the most frightening thing in any horror movie, Stephen King says, is when some character reaches for the door after they've heard a sound behind it. And once the door opens, right, and, and the character screams and the monster leaps out, like everybody in the audience shrieks but that shriek is soon followed by laughter because it's not as bad as you imagined and and i wanted to sort of occupy a space in the long night where you weren't you were sort of like always in that moment where the hand was reaching for the doorknob Mm -hmm. when it came to wolverine you weren't sure what was behind the door was he a murderer yes he is but maybe not in the way you first expect like what are what's in the shadowy interior of this character like what's what sort of cage does he keep inside of himself? What wild thing is trapped in there? You should align with him and also be terrified of him. Like so, I, I liked I liked that that was my first foray into Wolverine because I wanted to amplify that element of it. And now I'm doing something very different, which is to really explore the inner psyche of the guy. 
Um, I, I can't say I have preference one over the other. I'm having a hell of a lot of fun right now uh, writing the comic. And I have to say that I can't tell you what's coming, but there is something massive coming uh, in 2022 that's going to be my ultimate Wolverine story. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay. Oh, shit. baby. All oh, right, baby. Love to hear that. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I say that, like when I set off to write the pitch for this thing, it was this is my ultimate Wolverine story. Oh, yes. So, all fun. right. All in, baby. All yeah. in. Shit. So, <laughs> so, this might be the first time that we've had someone on who we can actually talk about sort of multiple, you know, uh, styles of, you know, of writing, you know, between the comic, the podcast, and now. Uh, you know, you've been writing fiction for a very long time and you've got a new series out, uh, The Ninth Metal. And I, yeah. I was joking with Nick before, so I'm going to screw this up and call it Nth Metal. Uh, <laughs> Getting confused with uh, DC shit. the DC stuff. But, you know, when, when, when taking a look at the synopsis of, of The Ninth Metal, you know, it seems like there are, you know, a lot of different elements here. We got mystery, thriller, science fiction. How would you sort of best describe this book? Well, it's an age-old sci-fi concept that I'm trying to make new, right? A comet streaks through the solar system. We spin through the debris field. It introduces to our world elements that upend the rules of geology, of physics, of biology, and creates chaos in the geopolitical theater. What I was trying to do was create a trigger event, a trigger event that would create a new world within this world. And the reason for that is... I wanted to build, I suppose you could say, my own MCU or DCU. This is a new dawn of heroes and villains. And I thank, in the acknowledgments, all the creative comics creators who came before me, because that is, in large part, the inspiration for this. You know, I'm thanking Kirby, I'm thanking Lee, I'm thanking Claremont, um, because what I have in these books is, here's a story that takes place in northern Minnesota with the Ninth Medal. It focuses on Omnimetal, which is similar to maybe something from the MCU or DCU. You could make the comparison to Nth Metal. You could make the comparison to Vibranium, Unobtainium, whatever. The idea is that it is a precious metal that absorbs energy on a quantum level. And so it creates, you know, this... this Complete, complete chaos when it comes to the energy sector and the weapon sector. And you have Saudis rushing to northern Minnesota. You have Chinese rushing to northern Minnesota. You have legacy families selling their land for millions of dollars, the mineral rights. You have miners who are located in the Iron Range who have experienced economic decline, who are now, you know, all in on this new metal. And, and what I wanted to do was create a contemporary Deadwood, like a new Wild West. Oh. Also equitable to what's going on in North Dakota when it comes to the Bakken oil boom and and how that's like its own version of Nouveau Deadwood right now. Um, you know, there's bodies in shallow graves. There's a uh, rise in prostitution and drugs. There's, you know, every hotel is and motel is full for 200 miles. Uh, it's just absolute, you know, madness when and, and and you have you know different different energy companies coming in you also have government agencies coming in you have people who have lived there forever who are upset about the way their community has transformed 
it just seemed like a perfect stage for drama. But the second book is entirely different. I call it the Comet Cycle for a reason. It's not a trilogy. And it might actually be six books. It might be nine books. It might be 12 books. I'm trying to create something that's infinitely generative. But all the books take place at the same time, these first three books, just in different locations. Okay. The second book takes place in, in the Pacific Northwest and has to do with alien plant life that's growing. Oh. Uh, I like that. Third book takes place in Alaska and has to do with dark matter and mirror matter. Uh, so all of these different books are dealing with different elements, different locations, uh, while also hinting at what's going on in the rest of the world, what's going on in the Amazon rainforest, what's going on in the Gobi Desert, what's going on in the trench at the bottom of the South Pacific. Like all, all the rules have changed. Wow. So when you talk about trying to create this, your own universe, your own you know, MCU, DCEU, whatever the hell they want to call it. Um, I, I never know anymore. But when it like when you talk about creating all that, of course, there's the bigger picture at play. And when you have the three stories, it sounds like you have the formula kind of down with it. What like are there certain obstacles, though, like when it comes to doing that versus creating your own story where it's like, you know, with the Devil's Highway, right? Like you, you have your own world, but at the same time, it's something that as much as we're, we're learning about that, that, uh, that group of truckers kind of growing even more than we already thought they were. It is in some ways like you can control the size of that. This, it sounds like you can just become like you want it to be immensely expansive. And I'm just curious, what is the, what are the challenges that you face when you're writing that? Sure. Yeah. And you know, devil's highway, that's a very small world it takes place in mostly in Minnesota, some in Wisconsin, you follow a few characters, you know, the rules essentially are the rules of this world. Uh, with Ninth Metal, it's epic in scope. And and I'm doing a lot of groundwork in this first book to, to hint at the larger world without revealing everything that's happening. The second book, I tried to scale things back, and it mostly concerns a husband and wife. They're divorced, and he is a professor of biology, who may have happened upon a career-defining discovery. She is a homicide detective in Seattle who is discovering a who's happened upon a series of ritualistic murders. Those two storylines converge, and there's a kind of symbiosis that occurs, and then it goes from he, she, to they by the end. And in the same way, you have a, a sort of symbiosis occurring when it comes to this alien plant life invading you know, our, our bio regions and, and there's some hive mind stuff going on and all sorts of, of, of weirdness, but, but that's a much more contained story. So I'm sort of going from macro to micro. I'll get a little bit bigger again in the third book, Skyball, but you have to take baby steps for sure, because it can become swiftly uh, unwieldy. And I guess my basic roadmap was the MCU. If you look at Iron Man, right? There's Iron Man, there's Thor, there's there's all these movies, and 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 you didn't really recognize at first that they were moving towards something much bigger than that, right? You wouldn't have watched Iron Man and thought, oh, this is what's going to happen with Infinity War. Yeah. You'd never guess that there would be that sort of massive threading. But all the all the groundwork is already laid there. Right. Yeah. The, the the tricky thing is like giving you these little stories that stand on their own, but are also part of a larger blueprint 
you know, because I want to have my Avengers assemble moment. I'm talking right. about all the different stories, these different mm -hmm. books, but I want them to ultimately come together and then break apart again and then come together and break apart again if I'm, you know, able to continue writing these. So with that with that theme in mind, and, and, and what made you want to go take this to, you know, fiction versus, uh, you know, making it a series of graphic novels? Is it because it's just so expansive and, and, and you know, writing prose just gives you that ability to really dive in deep? Or, or did you want to just kind of get back to that style of writing? Well, I, mean, I, I always like to have that balance in my life. I like to be able to write novels and I like to be able to write comics. I like to be able to write TV, film. I'm doing that more and more as well. You know, if you're writing a novel, it's it's all you. Yep. You know, you're you're doing all the heavy lifting and that can be really lonely and marathonic, but it's also very satisfying. Uh, with comics, you're part of a team. Yep. And you're strenuously trying to make each other better. Uh, and I love that as well. I love to have that balance, to have like, okay, here's here's me working on my own, on my own 40 acres. Here's me joining forces with all these badasses, these colorists, these editors, these these anchors. And and I guess I, I did maybe think about it briefly as a comic, but I wanted to sort of chart my own course. And because it sort of, it models itself not just after um, comics, you know. It it models itself after The Godfather. It models itself after westerns that I love as well. Like there's, it's just sort of like a big genre blender. Um, and so I, when I look at comics, I see the shared universe, and that's one of the pleasures, right? That Wonder Woman bleeds over into Superman, bleeds over into Batman. Like that's one of the pleasures of reading comics. But it also exists in literary land. I mean, Louise Eerdrich or William Faulkner, they have their own shared universe. Their novels uh, capture a certain geography and certain families over different generations. And I guess it's you could think of it as kind of like me, uh, uh, you know, doing a DNA strand of all my influences in that I'm as equally obsessed with novels as I am with comics, as I am with film. And this is sort of like, this is my own weird brain wrinkle of a story. Now, with so the ninth medal is set in Minnesota, where you're from, and then the Unfamiliar Garden, which comes out in January of next year, correct? Yeah. Okay. That's set in Oregon, right, where you grew up? Pacific Northwest, Seattle yeah. region, but close enough to where I grew up. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then the last one, which is the Sky Vault, is in, of these first three, is in Alaska, correct? Okay. So I'm just curious when, you, when you're like, are you, is there, a, I know you brought up the South Dakota portion of why it makes sense for the ninth medal and how it's nearby, but is there a particular reason that you wanted to have these stories set in those areas of the U S yeah. Uh, the Pacific Northwest is the wettest region of this country. And so, especially if you're talking about fungal life, alien fungal life, that's the place where it's going to happen. That's, that's where you're going to have the unfamiliar garden growing. Um, and, and when it comes to, it's also a region I know very well. Uh, and when it comes to Alaska, I've spent a lot of time up there. Uh, and you know, it's, it's the last frontier. That's their mall. Um, you know, it's a wild place and, and there's also, and I'm attracted to it not only for, for that region because it's the edge of the world. And because this is a story that's about the convergence of different worlds, it feels like a liminal territory. 
It's perfect for that. But also because there are a bunch of experimental weather stations up there. Oh, I didn't know that. Atmospheric science takes place. And the comet, which you will first believe comes from, you know, beyond the solar system, but it introduces, you know, material that's off the periodic table. And that's impossible, really, if you think about the way the Big Bang works. So how can how can you have material that's off the periodic table? Uh, the answer to that might be in the multiverse. And, you know, these weather stations might provide an answer. So when it comes to the dark matter of it all, oh. the third book really upends your whole understanding of what you've been reading. Oh, so wow. Sounds fantastic. I was planning on reading Dune while I go on vacation next week, but I'm going to go grab this yeah. uh, and give this a go because it, it sounds absolutely uh, fantastic. And so, uh, Benjamin, before before we let you go, we, we have one last question. And this is a question we, we like to ask all our guests that come on, you know, part of our... The, the purpose of our show is that, you know, each week I pick a book that Nick hasn't read. Nick picks a book that I haven't read. And and we talk about it, you know, because we want to share it, not just with each other, but obviously with the people that are that are watching and listening and try and get people to, you know, pick up books that they, they might have missed. And so we always like to ask our guests at the end, what, what is something that you're reading now uh, that's really been sort of, you know, grabbing your attention or, you know, just, just been exciting to read? Sure. I mean... I just finished Once in Future. Um, and I absolutely, we were just talking that. about that. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'm reading Appleseed by Matt Bell. It's a new novel that's coming out soon. It's is very David Mitchell-esque. If you've read Cloud Atlas, it has to do with lots of different timelines coming together. But the book that I've read recently that I just can't shake, I keep thinking about it. It's really a special novel. Is the first 15 Lives of Harry August by Claire North, and everybody I talked to, nobody's read it. Um, so highly recommend you check that out. I don't know if you know the premise, but it's sort of got a groundhog day thing going at first. It's like, here's this character, Harry August. And when he dies, he's reborn, but he's reborn at the exact same moment. It's always at this train station. His mother gives birth to him there and dies, but he retains all the knowledge of his previous life. And so he keeps reliving and he keeps reliving and he keeps reliving. One of the things that he discovers is that there are others like him, not just in this timeline, in all the timelines. Oh. And let's say you have a 97-year-old dude on his deathbed. A four-year-old girl walks in and whispers something in his ear. Let's say both of them are members of the Cronus Club. Cronus Club being these people who are immortals, essentially. If that girl, four-year-old girl, lives to be 90 years old herself, that means she knows what happens 90 years in the future. Maybe that's what she's whispering to him. So when that guy dies 97 years into the past, he's reborn. The, he can tell, communicate to the people there what has happened almost 200 years in the future, right? And so there's communication that goes across all these timelines. And what the things that are discovering is that the world keeps ending sooner and sooner. Oh, what? And one of yeah. their own members might be to blame. Okay. Well, I'll pick that one up too. Yeah. Jeez. I thought that's a good one. Um, but of course, Ben, we really appreciate you taking the time. And again, you guys can listen to Wastelanders Old Man Star-Lord now on apparently everywhere you get podcasts, which was news to us. Um, of course, you can pick up Nth Metal at, on Amazon, on Benjamin Percy's website, and then, of course, at Barnes & Noble's in your local bookstores. Wolverine, the 14th issue, drops this month. I believe that's issue 14, and I think that comes out the week of the 28th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, yeah, Ben, we really appreciate you setting aside some time to talk with us. 
Hey, thanks for having me on. I had fun. Thank you very much.